Well, as I always like to do is to start with a word of prayer, so why don't, we, uh, why don't we do that? Father, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to speak forth your truth as we look at the book of Zechariah. We pray, Lord God, that you would use it in, in each of our hearers' ears, that they would, uh, their life would be uh, changed, that they would become more like Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Today's message is called The Muted Messenger. It's about uh, messengers who have their voice quieted down. And it's quieted down for some unusual reasons, and we'll get to those in a little while. This wonderful prophecy of Zechariah, we've been looking at for many, many months. Um, it starts off with a call to repentance in this chapter as well as is a chapter on repentance. It, this this uh, call to repentance is something that uh, is going to ring loudly, clearly, and long in this whole book because that's what it's about. So let's go back to Zechariah 1 just to remind you of where it started. And it says in Zechariah 1, 2 and 3, Yahweh was very angry with your fathers. God is always angry. He's angry at sin. And well, he's to do to be angry at sin because sin put his son on the cross, but he's angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, repent, is basically, this is an Old Testament way of saying, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It's almost like the um, message of the prodigal son. We heard that recently from our own pastor, and and he called. You can see that the son, after getting to the end of himself, returns to the father. That's what it is. It's a, it, this is the, the the reason. Okay, that we are here is to talk about repentance, to to see that people need to repent, and and that's not just repent for salvation, but that's also to repent of your sin on a regular and a daily basis. So the prodigal returns the. Um, the folks in Zechariah's day are told to return, but we come to chapter 13. It gives us a picture here. It gives us a picture here, and I, I want you to grasp this, of the abundance of grace of our Savior, the abundance of mercy of our Lord Yahweh as he calls us to himself. Whenever I think of that abundant grace, I, I think of uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. He calls us to him. He knows that we're weary. He knows that we're heavy laden. We're heavy laden with all that sin that's on us over and over again. That moment, that moment that we do come to him, is a moment that's filled with grace. That moment is a God-filled moment as well. And so for anyone who has that time of sin in their life, run to the cross, run to Jesus. He, he has his arms wide open for you. He wants to receive you in true repentance. The coming to Jesus for salvation is a God-wrought and blessed occurrence. It brings joy to the heart. It brings gladness to the spirit. It's something that we become overjoyed with. You can see David when each and every time when he repents in, in Psalm 51, Psalm 38, Psalm 32, it's given to much joy and much gladness that God has changed him. Now, folks, just because you repent of your sin or you confess your sin, it doesn't mean that you're going to have a guarantee of, of uh, world peace. You're not going to have a guarantee of peace in your life. It just means that you've returned to him. So let's look at Zechariah 13. Uh, this is a very profound portion of scripture here. Again, it's speaking of the day of the Lord. It speaks of it over and over again as this day that's his. 
well, you put it this way, this today is a tragic story. This today is really a heart-wrenching story. And it's about the end times and, and things that are going to happen then. And, and in a sense, we keep getting closer and closer to that day. And so that day keeps getting scarier and scarier as we approach it. But Zechariah chapter 13, 1 through 6 says this, In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave him birth to him will say to him, huh, you shall not live. For you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother who gave him birth will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground. For a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those that which, with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. That's the end of the verses 1 through 6. Interesting story. Interesting the way it's been put together and, and, and that we have for us today. And so I'd like to unfold this for us as best I can. Um, by the way... Um, just saying that you're sorry about sin does not mean that you're truly repentant about your sin. That's not enough, really, when you when you think about what Christ has done for us to just say, I'm sorry about what I've done. You can't merely cry over your sin, and, and you see that sometimes with little kids. They cry over their sins. I, I see that sometimes even with adults. They cry over their sin, but it doesn't really mean that they're repentant. Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 7 says that there is a sorrow of the world, and that's basically what that is. I, I can tell you this, there are many men and women in the state penitentiary that are sorry that they murdered someone. Yeah, they're sorry. They're sorry got caught. They're sorry that uh, for themselves because they have to spend time in jail. They, they may even feel bad about it, but it's not um, like truly repenting and coming to Christ. It's like Judas. You feel sorry about it. You, you really didn't like doing it or you, you were even involved in it, but it's just being another Judas is what it is. It's what I call an earthly sorrow. It's a, a disingenuous sorrow, if you want to know the truth. Friends, in coming to Jesus Christ, it is complete cleansing. Uh, I love the wording that's used here, That and this is even the Lord giving this grace. He's going to open up a fountain, and much is going to come from that fountain. The heart responds when it's saved in contrite response to sin. It realizes what that sin has done in putting Jesus on the, on the cross. They finally embrace their Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, what we're going to see, though, are some false teachers. We're going to see that Israel for centuries will be muted. Their, their prophesying will be muted here. They themselves will turn against their children. There'll be some Jews here, moms and dads, who are going to turn against their sons because they're false prophets. There are going to be some prophets, even at this time, they're going to be ashamed of what they're doing. And they're not going to want anybody to know who they are, and so they will even lie about what, and what they do. 
Beloved, this is a gracious result of Israel's repentance here, to, for God to open up a fountain, a, an a ever-flowing fountain. I, I'm going to put this in a sort of a two-step process, although salvation is one. It, it's God taking care of all of it. But there's a two-step process here to get this gracious result of repentance. So the first uh, step would be God's immense grace. We see that in verse 1, and we're going to look at that for a little while. And then we're going to see also the people's immense response. There's an incredible response that we see here as well, showing us that there is true and false repentance. So verse 1 says, in that day, we've mentioned this over and over again, that as we see this happen in chapter 12, we see it now in chapter 13, in that day is referring to the last day. It's referring to the um, to the uh, um, day of the Lord, Armageddon, if, uh, that we could put it that way. In the, this last day, which is not just one day, but it's a time period, it will be opened. It says, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and iniquity. This particular phrase, in that day, contains um, and, and is telling the audience of these circumstances that they are to be looking forward to. This is something in the future. It is a prophecy. We see in uh, chapter 12, verse 6, it says, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a, a fire pot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves. We see that he's going to use the people of Judah. He's going to use the people of Jerusalem for his purposes. We see it again in, in chapter 12, verse 11. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem. It's going to be affected. The people in that area are going to be affected with what's going on because it's going to be such an incredible time, an incredible place of of just God working and changing people's hearts. The Old Testament people of God will receive a fountain. This fountain is a fountain of grace. This is unlike what they've ever seen before. It's going to be poured out, but it's only going to be poured out on those who are true believers. The fountain here is a metaphor for the unmerited grace of God. It's, it's God's divine cleansing. He's, he's cleaning them up, so to speak. This is a flow that is not assisted to by humans. It is like a river glorious, as we could put it that way. It's a gushing. It's a, it's a sprouting forth. It's, it's like old faithful continuing to be old faithful without stopping. It just keeps going. Uh, it doesn't give up at all. It doesn't have to be replenished. The context here says that Yahweh himself will be the one who opens up this fountain of grace. The Hebrew indicates that it is open and it will remain open. It's something that's going to be constant. It's going to be everlasting. It's going to be forever. I happen to be reading a a book right now called The Great Awakening, speaking about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards and of George Whitfield and about the impact on the conversion of people back in the 1700s. It had this one particular quote, and I want you to hear this. It would seem that in every case, the happy change came upon the sinner's mind instead of being wrought by him. Understand that. We don't save ourselves. God in his abundant grace, gives that to us. And that's what's happening here. He's giving it to some of the Jewish people. We're not going to say all the Jewish people because all of them are not going to be saved. To some of the Jewish people and opening up their hearts. This is, there is a personal sense of their own exceeding sinfulness. I can still remember back to the day when I got saved. 
That's what I remember. I remember how sinful I was and how much I needed Jesus Christ. It's going to be a day where they see their own vileness. They see their own dirtiness and and they begin to cry out. The author of that particular book is saying that the sinner has absolutely nothing to do with his salvation. Has absolutely nothing to do with his salvation. And, and, And that's the theological point that God is always pointing out in the scriptures. All those that have come to Jesus Christ recognizing their need for salvation and their total inability to achieve it on their own. They, they can do nothing to be saved, but God does it for them. Specifically in this text, those cleansed are in the house of David. Uh, that's what it's speaking about, this particular prophecy. It's speaking about those who are the inhabitants of Jerusalem in particular. This fountain is there to cleanse from sin and from impurity. This is not an ordinary fountain, folks. This is something that is extraordinary. But this is one gushing and cleansing waters of the forgiveness of sin. Sin here that uh, is being used in the Old Testament, the particular word that's being used here in the Old Testament, means missing the mark of any kind, missing the mark kind of sin. That's what it's talking about. It means not living to the standard of holy living. Um, God calls us to a standard. You know, even get to the New Testament, and you see in, in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the Matthews 5, 6, and 7. And that standard is extremely high. Most, most Christians are just trying to get in there somewhere, but the, the standard that God gives is extremely high, and that's what it's talking about. And you know what? That gap of what we don't have is the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are covered that way, is by Him. And so this impurity, this sin, is about to become, the impurity that is covered here is about the outcome of our sin. And that's what happens when, when we indulge in sin, when we get ourselves involved with sin, it eventually is going to be brought out in even the outcome of that sin of being impure. It's going to be ugly. It's it's a breach in the relationship with the Lord. If you just say, well, that's no big thing, and that's no big thing, and that's no big thing, and you keep saying that, eventually that's going to catch up with you. And God is going to hold you accountable for that. He doesn't want you to continue in that kind of sin. Because of the uncleanness of the sinner, he cannot approach a holy God. It's an impossibility for him to approach a holy God. He needs to be like that... uh, a uh, tax gatherer in Luke chapter 18 where he's beating his breast, not even able to lift his head up to heaven and seeing how much of a sinner he truly is. The sinner here is separated from God. He, he cannot approach God. He's in fear of even approaching God. The cleansing that takes, us, takes place here is one that removes sin's penalty and sin's power. It's completely taken away. Romans 6 tells us that we are no longer slaves of sin. Now we become slaves of righteousness, and that's what we ought to be. And that's what shows us through the the fruit of the Spirit as we begin to live out our Christian life. I want to give you another picture, Uh, another picture from another prophet about this. In Ezekiel chapter 36, gives us uh, another prophet that speaks to this issue. And it's speaking about the cleansing, and we see that in Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. 
It says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name. Notice that. It's about God's name. It's about God's character, that he has to act on sinners. My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. That's what God doesn't like. He doesn't like his name being brought down. When somebody says they're a Christian, they ought to act like a Christian. When they don't do that, they are bringing his name down. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, for I will make you, take you, I'm sorry, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. God's going to take them into their own land because he's going to vindicate his name. He is not what they make him out to be. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And that's what he hates because that's competition in a sense. The idols are competition for people to give their heart and their time to the idol rather than to the Lord God Almighty. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is what it's speaking of here. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's what God wants from his people. What is that? First uh, Peter, you be holy for I am holy. It's no different. It's throughout all of the scriptures. Verse 28, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers So you will be my people and I will be your God. When we declare that we're his, he expects something from us. He expects us to live the life that he's called us to. Not to just say, I'm a Christian and go live any old way I want to live. But there is an expectation, expectation to love God with our whole heart, mind, and soul and to love others as we already love ourselves. So that's the, the, the cleansing here of all impurities that God is going to take them away. They will not want to, fall, to worship false gods. They will not want to follow false worship in any sense of the word, and they'll not want to listen to false prophets. They want to listen to the true called ones who are preaching the word of God. Now we can even fast forward this to the time of Paul. And Paul, in in Romans chapter 11, speaks about this same issue. In Romans 11, verse 25, um, speaking of this wonderful renewal of the Jewish nation, and there will be a renewal of the Jewish nation. We see that in Romans 11, verse 25, and it says this, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Speaking of what the the Jewish nation is going through at this point, what they've gone through since Jesus Christ came to the earth, there's a partial hardening, okay, has happened to Israel. 
They, they don't hear. Yes, there are Jewish individual people that have come to Christ. I've got a very good friend who has come to Christ, and he's Jewish. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. That's what's going to happen. And that's what we're speaking about here in Zechariah chapter 13. And then Zechariah chapter 14, we're going to be getting there in a not-too-distant future. So what happens on that day? when God cleanses their hearts. It says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for iniquity. He's going to cleanse them. That fountain is going to be doing the cleansing. It's an incredible cleansing. William Cowper, man who was very troubled in his time when he was writing hymns and and songs and all that kind of thing, he wrote this particular fabulous hymn, There is a Fountain, and it goes like this. I'm only going to. I'm not going to sing it because I do want you to continue to listen. But here is what it says in this one particular stanza. It says, "There is a fountain filled with blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains." And that's what it's talking about here in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. There is a cleansing that happens with God's people. He overcomes their sin and cleanses them. This is God's immense grace. This is God's immense blessing that the, 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 the sin that put Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is now going to actually cleanse them. It's going to be thorough in its cleansing. For us as New Testament believers, it it changes lives. And those who once were in darkness now are in light. At this time in Zechariah, it's going to completely change a whole group of people all at once. And we're not going to get to that until a a little bit later, um, probably next week. But this is absolutely important for us to understand. God is going to do that for the Jewish people. The second step, the second step. Not just God's cleansing and all of that, but here are some of the reactions to it. The, the immense and the profound reaction by the people of God to this. The second step <clears throat> is God's unfolding of gr- God's gracious um, grace on the people. And it's an immense response, folks, if you look at it. Verse 2, let's start little by little here and take you through this uh, little bit of a tour uh, bus ride through it. Verse 2, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. The idols, that's the competition that I spoke about earlier. The Hebrew word for idols is atzav, and it comes from the verb which means to form or to fashion. In other words, it's something that you have to put together. Uh, it's something that you, you gather up and you put together. Maybe it's a piece of wood that has to be carved. Maybe it's some clay that has to be formed. That's what it's speaking about here. It's something that's created by human hands, the idols that they worship. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols. The names will be cut off from the land. They will be erased. These names will not only be erased from the idols, but it's going to be erased from existence. Uh, The names will not be remembered. So you fashion that piece of wood, you fashion that piece of clay into an idol, and not until you name it 
does that piece of wood or that piece of clay actually become something, something to be remembered, something that has value? You take away the remembrance, you take away the name, you take away the value of the object. So once the name is gone, they can't remember what it is or what it was that they used to worship. It's an interesting Hebrew word that's used here by uh, Zechariah. The, the word to cut, it means to cut a covenant. And, and frankly, as we can say, it also means to cut their names out of the covenant. They're not there anymore. They're over. They're done away with. The people get rid of them. They cut those names out because God has cut their names out from their hearts and their minds. However, Yahweh is saying he will cut off the false idols from the land so that they will not be there anymore. Not only will they be cut off, but they will not even be remembered. It's, I guess we could say it's something like national dementia. All of a sudden we forget these things. You know, I, I see that sometimes, having been here too many years, um, that when you mention a name of somebody that's even been on staff and everybody that's in the room doesn't remember who that was because it was so long ago, they don't remember their name. Uh, I just had that the other day. We were speaking about uh, some folks on staff, and we could not remember a particular person's name. We kept working and working and working at it, and finally came to that name. Folks, once you have your name cut out, you have national dementia. It goes away. You, have you ever repented of a particular sin and wished that you had dementia about it, that it would go away from your memory, that you wouldn't remember it? The, even the pleasure that it, it continues to uh, be on your mind and you think about it and, and you want to get rid of that because it plagues your mind, it plagues your heart, and you know that it's wrong, you want to take that away. You wish you could have dementia there. This is a sin that will be taken away by the Almighty. It will be totally forgotten. I, I wish that happened with all of our sins. I, I actually, frankly, would probably be out of um, doing what I do in counseling because nobody would need to talk to me. But they have those things that keep coming back and they keep being plagued by them. We wish that all of our sins would be taken away and forgotten by us, but they are remembered there will be no remembrance here of its past pleasures. The sin that may linger in our minds is completely taken away. Yahweh continues, he says this, I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. <clears throat> from, the prof from the context here, we can see that the prophets are actually false prophets. He's going to take them away from the land. And we can see that they're false prophets because the false prophets are measured with unclean spirits. So that's pretty clear. Verse 3 indicates that the prophet's parents see them as liars. I, I, I'm, I'm touched by this because I am a parent. I'm a, I'm a grandparent. And if anyone still prophesies, he, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, you shall not live. Back in Deuteronomy, it says that if a prophet speaks false prophecy, they're supposed to be stoned. Well, these parents are now remembering that. Why? Because they've had a cleansing of their own heart. They have now had that fountain of grace given to them. And it says, you shall not live, for you have spoken falsely of the name of the Lord. It's hard to understand. Parents doing that with their own children. You shall not live. You shall die. It's very emphatic speech here. The parents are, are being even emotional about this. They're completely emotional in their nature and saying, 
this is serious and we need to do something about it. And we're right here. We're your parents. We're going to kill you. We're going to do away with you. I know some parents find that very difficult to do. But when a child is now prophesying falsely about God and and about the things of God, that is exactly what is supposed to be happening. That is exactly what is happening. These prophets will be confronted by their own parents. This is a picture of incredible response by the people. Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, they see the importance of confronting this. And the father and his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. I got to tell you, folks, that's all in. If you're a Christian and you can say that about your own children, that is all in. But, you know, we see that even in the Gospels. Are you? There'd be a separation sometimes of mother and father and, 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 and children and all of those kinds of things. The parents here, and this is something not to be missed, are willing to take the life of their son. Parental affection is out the window when dealing with corruption, when dealing with this kind of corruption that's speaking falsely about God. It needs to be dealt with. They will look upon him who they pierced and desire him above even their own children. Jesus Christ the, the Messiah becomes much more important than their children. Not even the strong emotion of parental love can hold them back from doing the most precious thing in declaring Yahweh as Lord. Not only the parents will be ashamed of their child, but listen to this. The prophet will also experience conscience. Now listen to what I just said. Conscience, conviction, I don't believe. I don't believe, not for all of them. I think there's conviction for some of them. I'm, I'm not there, nor will I be there. But I think for some of them, there will be conviction. I think some of it will be conscience. They'll see the evil of their ways. They'll see what happens to those who do continue to prophesy. And you know what? They don't want to be killed. So they stop or they make excuses or whatever. But look, let's look at verse 4 before I get ahead of myself here. Verse 4, also will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. Now notice, he still prophesied, but he's ashamed of his vision. And they will not put on a hairy robe in order to be to deceive. You say, what in the world does a hairy robe have to do with any of this? Well, just by way of information, the hairy robe or a cloak was a sign that the man wore that, that he was a prophet. We see that back in 2 Kings 1.8, where it tells us that Elijah the Tishbite wore a hairy cloak. So it was sort of a sign. It's um, like once I, I counseled with somebody who came on the campus. They just came in to talk about something, and, and I asked them if they were a Christian. They said, no, I'm not a Christian. I don't wear a tie like you do. By the way, I'm not wearing a tie today. I understand that, but I'm still a Christian. But he thought everybody that wore a tie had to be a Christian. That's not what we were a tie for. But anyway, this false prophet, he put on the cloak. He, he, it was claiming when you put on that cloak, claiming that he was receiving divinely ordained and inspired messages. And these divinely inspired messages were to be given out. And, and this cloak sort of acted as a, 
a, a, a means of telling everybody that he was truly a prophet. As a prophet pontificated, as he gave his spiel out, the robe supposedly authenticated this particular message, whatever the message may have been. Even the, the coarse hair garment of a prophet will be shunned by the false prophet. Notice that. It's shunned by the false prophet. And it says, it will be ashamed of his visions when he prophesies, and they will not put on the hairy robe in order to deceive. They, they are ashamed of putting on that, that particular robe because they know what it means. Out of fear, maybe. Out of intimidation, maybe. Out of challenge, they begin to discard the hairy robe. Maybe it's conscience. Maybe it's conviction. Maybe it's just fear that they're going to have their life taken. They are in fear. They're in fear for their life. And probably there is conviction and there is conscience of their own uncleanness. Look at how far they go to disclaim their former profession. Verse 5, but he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. Now, folks, I hear that. I look at that. And I say, that man cannot be a Christian. That man cannot be saved. Well, how do I know that? He cannot be saved because he's now lying to get away from his responsibility that he should be saying. He should be taking. Uh, I did this, and and I I need to be um, responsible for it. But he's saying, no, I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. What are they doing? Deny, deny, deny. The lengths they go to hide their profession because they are under conviction or just frightened uh, as to what is going to happen. They're afraid of what's going to happen to them. They know the scriptures of what's supposed to happen with a false prophet. They have to be stoned. He's claiming here to be a tiller of the ground, a slave from his youth. If that were so, there would be no way that he could have led anyone into any kind of idol worship. I mean, he's in a whole different class of people. He's in a whole different uh, segregated place of where he would be that, to be able to speak to others about the prophecies of, of God. No, no way he could do that. He is disclaiming any connection to the prophetic office. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. There is no way he could be connected to the prophetic office if he were a slave or a tiller of the ground. And so he uses excuse after excuse after excuse of, I'm not, me? Oh, I'm innocent. I don't wear a hairy robe. I don't, um, I, I'm, I'm a slave. I, I'm a tiller of the ground. And, and so I'm disclaiming anything to do with that kind of prophetic office. He just doesn't want to be stoned and he doesn't want to be turned in by his parents. In verse 6, they are challenged. And we see that there. What are these wounds between your arms? Well, let's, uh, and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? These are, are wounds that aren't happening because of battle or anything like that. These aren't wounds because they're in some kind of a fight club or those kinds of things. These are visible and they're questioned by the people. 
As you may remember, the false prophets often indulged in cutting themselves in order to bleed to get the attention of their gods. They wanted to attract attention of the people even, that this is how far they would go to be able to get this prophetic message to them. This is what uh, in the Baal worship would be self-mutilation that often took place in times of worship. We see in 1 Kings that uh, the prophet uh, uh, speaks of there in uh, Elijah when he's dealing with them in, in 1 Kings chapter chapter 18, verse 28. So they cried aloud with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. They, they used all these things to cut themselves to try to get the attention of the gods, and the gods were still asleep up there. They weren't moving. They weren't doing anything. Their answer... One challenge, those with which I was wounded in the house of a friend, what kind of friend are you hanging around with? What kind of a friend would you would do that to you? That, that shouldn't happen. A friend wouldn't do that to you, nor would you do that to yourself unless you were a false prophet. So you can see all of this lying that's going on leads me to believe, okay, that these false prophets are still false prophets. They're still not saved. They're still not... Um, uh, they, they haven't seen the, the grace of God in their life. They're just reacting that way because they don't want to be killed. They don't want to, any retribution on them. And so I, I would say to them, you shouldn't be hanging around those kinds of friends because they're, they're just there to inflict pain and suffering. Folks, do you think these prophets are yet converted? I, I, I don't. I'm sorry. I think it's they're, they're into their lying and deceiving and if you're really truly converted, you take responsibility, full responsibility of what you've done. When somebody asks you, did you or were you involved here? You tell them everything. You don't give them just a little bit. You give them everything. I've seen that over and over again in my 38 years of being a Christian, that you speak to somebody about their um, what they have, they messed up. You know, that's what they call it, is messed up. Well, tell me about it. And they give you a very little thing. I care. It doesn't matter if it's a 12-year-old or a 112-year-old. They still want to give you just a little bit. They're afraid that you'll see that. And I look at them and I say, look, you can hide it from me. You can tell me whatever kind of story you want to tell me, but you can't hide it from God. And that's who you need to confess and show that you're truly repentant of your sin. This particular passage is an encouragement to my heart. And you say, how can that be? You've got these parents who are willing to kill their children. Not that the parents will slay their sons. It, that doesn't bring any, any joy to my heart. But the true evidence of salvation is clear here. That those who are declaring themselves gods were willing to do that. Not that they did it, but they were willing to do that. They were declaring that Jesus is Lord, not their parental emotion. That Jesus is Lord and not their parental emotion. I think so often we have parents even making excuses for their children. And they do that often enough that their children expect it, even when those children are 30 years old. Make more excuses for me, Mom. Make more excuses for me, Dad. The fountain of cleansing does a thorough job. When you can... Uh, put behind your sin and your uncleanness thoroughly. That's what the, the, the cleansing does, the fountain as it clean, cleanses. 
One last mention here of this theological subject of repentance. God is the judge. He knows true repentance. He knows true repentance. And he could be simply meeting out his justice immediately. Boom, he could take them down immediately. And he can take them down completely. Or he can be using this to bring about their repentance. In this particular situation, those parents were saved immediately. Those prophets, who knows? Maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't happen. Yet, this I do know about my God. His love, and we're going to call it hesed, the Hebrew word. God desires to extend his mercy. He's always calling, come to me. He wants to extend his forgiveness. He says, come to me. I want to forgive you. He wants to restore you back to a right relationship to God and to others. But you have to go to him. He wants to give you hope, but you have to go to him. You have to repent. You have to return to him. This is, in a sense, this two-step process. He gives you all that grace, and it's out there for you. What do you do with it? Do you ignore it, or do you take it up? You can see here that the prophet was muted. That's the false prophet was muted, but the true prophet comes out loud and clear. He's willing to forgive. Are we willing to repent of all that is in our life?